you have a Bible, you can turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 8. 2 Kings 8, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 15. If you have uh, read this passage ahead of time, you might think that's a typo, and I assure you it's not. Um, As we read through those first 15 verses, you might think these are completely unrelated. Where's this going to go? But these are two, two different stories in Elisha, the prophet's ministry. They, they do seem pretty unrelated except for one very important fact, which is that one very particular Hebrew word shows up 10 times in these 15 verses. It's kind of hard to see, but it's the Hebrew word to live. So that shows up about 10 times in 15 verses um, in the form of, of uh, it gets translated as restored, um, healed, um, not, not exactly as uh, to live, recover, words like that, but it's all the same word, to live. Uh, far more than, than the rest of anywhere else in Second Kings, it shows up in these two, these two stories. And so both of these put together show us, um, hopefully we can see that, that the Lord is the ultimate life giver, on the one hand, in the first half, and in the second half, he kind of does the opposite. He is the death bringer, uh, so says one commentator. He determines all things. He determines the beginning and the end. But another big theme that we see in this passage that links these two stories together is that he doesn't always do it in our timing. God doesn't always do things on our timing, does he? The Christian life is a life that takes patience. It's a lot of waiting. Certainly in in the many small-scale things, whether you're trying to drive through traffic, whether you're waiting in line um, at the DMV or or anywhere else, that seems to be the longest line that exists. Um, Certainly on the the small scale, but also in the, the biggest scale possible as well, your entire life is one of patience and waiting. And, and really, all of history is one of, of patience and waiting for believers and for the church as well. And, and both of these stories kind of put together show us God's faithful remnants in Israel has been playing a very, very long waiting game. We see two different prophetic words uh, longing to be fulfilled that have been years in the making and now start to come true. And it really does tell us that the Christian life in, in the big picture for us is one big long wait. But the wait is also very worth it at the end of the day. So let me pray for us one more time and then we'll read these verses. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do... Um, come to your word again asking for help. As your word has been read already, so we're going to read it again. Your word is being sowed and sent out and planted. It will be planted in some of our hearts. We do pray that Satan would not snatch it away from us as we leave this building. We do pray that the trials of life would not cause this fruit to wither. We pray that the thorns and the um, 
the cares and anxieties of this world would not choke out your word as well. But we do pray that it would be planted deep in our hearts and that it would bear fruit in our lives, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servants of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appeared to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him, So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. Now Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, The man of God has come here, the king said to Hazael, Take a present with you and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, forty camels loads. And when he came and stood before him, he said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? And Elisha said to him, Go, say to him, You shall certainly recover, but... The Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. And Hazael said, Why does my Lord weep? He answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses, and you will kill their young men with the sword, and dash in pieces their little ones, and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael said, What is your servant, who is but a dog, that he should do this great thing? And Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master, who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took the bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face until he died. And Hazael became king in his place. Amen. And so, two two very different stories, two very different long waiting periods. Christian life is filled with a long wait. The first, in the first six verses, with this woman, the Christian life is a very long wait for redemption. It's a long wait for redemption. And that long wait for redemption begins with a costly faithfulness 
but it ends with a very, very glorious repayment. So starting at verse 1, this is uh, actually the same woman, the same Shunammite woman from all the way back in chapter 4. If you remember, this was a, a, a great woman who had built this sort of extra room onto her house for Elisha to stay there. Uh, and in repayment, Elisha had given her and her husband a son. Uh, that son, of course, died when he was about maybe 10, 12 years old, and Elisha raised him back to life. Uh, she's back here in chapter 8, but in a very, very different situation than chapter 4. Uh, and that's really part of the key to understanding these first six verses. Back in chapter 4, she proclaimed very, very um, matter-of-factly to Elisha that, that she had everything that she needed. She was content. Um, she didn't really lack anything. But now when she shows up in chapter 8, it's, it's really exactly the opposite situation for her. She's lost everything that she once had. So apparently the Lord had planned for some sort of famine to hit the land and, out of God's kindness, warns the Shunammite woman ahead of time so that she can make arrangements to leave. Now she's come back and she's found that her house and her property and everything along with it has been taken which could mean a few different things. It could mean that it was stolen. It could mean uh, perhaps just it had been abandoned, and so the government sort of took control over it since no one was there. Uh, But either way, uh, it's gone. It's not hers anymore. Um, What's interesting about the Shunammite woman, there are many interesting things, but we have several different very small snapshots of her life over the course of many years perhaps maybe 15 to 20 years of her life. But it's not all that hard to start to fill in the gaps of what her life was like. So years and years and years, before chapter 4, years of struggling with infertility and an aging husband, probably. They had been barren for a long, long time, wanting a son but couldn't have it. The tragedy of losing her 10- or 12-year-old son's the one thing that had become her greatest treasure in life. Um, being forced, eventually, maybe uh, uh, scholars say that maybe chapter 8 is happening right about the same time that he raised her son to life. And so, so all of a sudden, just out of the blue, she has to pack up and leave her home for seven years, move to another country. And, and, and don't, don't gloss over that seven years. That's a long time, isn't it? I mean, think back seven years ago, May 2016, where you were at in life. Um, I'm the youth pastor here. None of the kids in our youth group were in youth group seven years ago. They were all in fifth grade or lower. That's crazy. Um, My sorry parents for making you realize how fast it's all going. Um, Seven years ago, my my wedding anniversary is coming up. I was not married yet. I did not have a wife. I did not have either of my two, now three, children. Um, I've moved three times since then. Uh, huge changes. And imagine how her life would have changed as well in seven years. Probably her 10 or 12-year-old son has grown up, become a man. Um, probably, because we don't hear about him at all, her husband has passed away. He was already an old man in chapter 4 tack on another 10 years for that child's life, seven years living in Philistia. 
He's probably gone. And then to top it all off, she comes home after a long journey away and finds everything's gone. And look at this woman's faithfulness to the Lord despite all of those afflictions and trials. It, it has to stand out like a, like a bright light, how much she has sacrificed for the sake of loving the Lord and loving the Lord's prophet. A, a lot of these afflictions and these trials, too, are coming because she's been faithful to the Lord. Right? They, they ate the cost of adding something onto their house, right? Because she housed Elisha, she had a son and then he died. Because she's been faithful to the Lord and listened to Elisha, she had to leave her home for seven years and come back to find all of her stuff gone. And yet how willingly she continues to follow God's instruction despite all these different afflictions. So many years, probably at least 15 to 20 years recorded in Scripture here, and then for years before that, believing and trusting and obeying God, presumably tithing to the temple, worshiping, praying, singing. Despite so many years of uncertainty and loss and trauma and desperation and helplessness and hopelessness, and she stays faithful. Now, I mean, it's, it's hard, actually impossible to say internally how she was doing over the course of so many years. Externally, at least, it looks like, I mean, she stays on course, right? She doesn't waver. As hard as it might be to believe and keep going, she does. Um, and whatever has happened with her house and her, prof- her, her property, it's just one more dagger in the heart. So she returns. She plans to do something about it. She goes to the king's palace and to the king's court because that would be, you know, put it in modern-day terms, that's the supreme court of the land, was to go to see the king to make a, to make a decision to help her out. So she journeys all the way to make an appeal, and just at that very moment, by happy coincidence, who should be there speaking to the king but Gehazi? Um, Elisha's servant. And just as sort of an aside, it's, it's tough to say why he's there exactly. Um, if you remember back in chapter 5 with Naaman, Gehazi was cast out of Elisha's presence for good. So it's likely this is just not in chronological order. All these different stories are arranged by theme rather than time. Uh, regardless, though, this king is asking Gehazi about all the, all the, all the miracles that Elisha's done, all the private things, all the secret things that he hasn't had the opportunity to see yet. And between God's miraculous timing, Elisha's reputation, the miracle itself, Gehazi's witness, this woman has an advocate before the king. So he puts an official on the case and justice is done. And everything that she left behind and everything that she lost was restored back to her. And not just the stuff, but all of the produce of the field that would have grown there for seven years, everything that would have been harvested is hers. Um, Now on one level, this is an awesome picture of a faithful disciple and follower of Jesus Christ, just, just like we read from the Gospel of Mark. Um, the disciples in Mark called, called to have a very costly sort of faithfulness in order to follow Jesus. But 
The moral of the story is not just have perfect faith, never waver, God will fill up your bank account, don't worry about it. It's actually very, very much the opposite. One of the morals of the story is that to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is very, very costly, and it is very, very hard. Both this man and Mark who come to who who comes to Jesus asking the question, what must I do to have eternal life, and the Shunammite woman, both of them get tested and poked right where it hurts. Um, So you notice Jesus mentions several of the different commandments beforehand. He leaves out the one that's going to give the man the hardest time, which is coveting. Um, the Shunammite woman, likewise, with, with her children, with her home, having everything that she needs, it gets all taken away. They get tested right where it hurts the most. Uh, and so we, we, we learn from Mark, I mean, there are things in this life that are going to leave you. When you become a Christian, it might be your parents and your family and your friends who think you're weird and don't want to have anything to do with you once you become a Christian. Uh, It might be that at your job you don't get the promotion. It might be that you lose your job altogether because your boss thinks that you're a freak. Uh, It might be some form of, of persecution. There are a lot of things in this world that are going to leave you behind. There are also a lot of things that we must leave behind. Namely, from Mark and both for the woman in Shunem, all of the earthly treasures that we love, and, and, and frankly, love too much. Right? So it, it, it's, it's telling for this man who comes to Jesus when Jesus tells him, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And how does he walk away? He walks away sorrowful, doesn't he? It's not worth it to him. Um, that's, that's probably a sermon in and of itself. How, how sorrowful would you walk away if God came to you and tell you to s- sell everything that you own and give it away to the poor? I mean, w- would you walk away happy and joyful and eager to fulfill God's command? Or would you walk away like this man, a little depressed, <laughs> a little sad, right? If Jesus came and told you to, to sell your Xbox or your closet full of clothes and give all the money to the poor, how would you respond? If he came down and told you, downsize your vehicle, downsize your house, downsize your phone, so that you have more money freed up to give to a missionary, I mean, how would you respond to that? Right? Um, travel less, vacation less, so that you can be available for the church more and you can serve people who are in need, so you can practice hospitality. So that'd be a hard thing to hear. Sell, in essence, your time and your talents. Uh, Here's one that that, uh, I often think about with, we've got graduation uh, season right now. How about take a lesser-paying job? Maybe choose a different college if that means you're going to a city with a great church. Right? And again, this, this isn't, the, the point is not the stuff, either for the, the Shunammite woman, for the disciples in Mark, or for us. The point is not the stuff exactly. The point is what that stuff says about your heart. What do you value? What do you love? What do you cherish most? What's driving you in life? 
Uh, if, we, if we do love and value Jesus overall, we don't walk away from those things sorrowfully. We walk away from them eager to serve Jesus, eager to share the gospel. The Shunammite woman knew that. She, she walked away from everything time and time again because Elisha told her. So it says a lot about our hearts, and at the same time, whatever the cost that you pay for being kingdom-minded and gospel-focused and faithful to Jesus, Jesus tells us you will be repaid a hundredfold for what you've given up. Both in this life and even more so in the life to come. So even so, Mark talks about, you know, you leave parents and siblings behind, but you think about it, you, you come to church and you've got, I don't know, do we have 200 in this room? You have 200 new brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, we're at the risk of getting stoned. You might lose some stuff, but you have 200 people's worth of stuff here that you can borrow and use at any time you need, right? That's a good lesson, but I think even more applicable for the Shunammite woman is, is the second half being repaid a hundredfold and a thousandfold and a millionfold in the age to come, right? None of the sacrifices that we make, none of us will get to heaven and say, man, I really wish I hadn't sacrificed that for Jesus, right? And it's hard to put into words exactly what we gain in heaven, and yet Scripture is very, very clear that it's worth it. So even a couple of passages that we've talked about from uh, in the past couple of Second Corinthians sermons, from, from well, first from Romans eight, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Or again, Second Corinthians four, which we have heard recently, we we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Remember, Paul's light momentary affliction was beatings, whippings, jail, shipwrecks. He's not being trite when he says that. Uh, even Psalm 113, which we read for our call to worship, which, which, I don't know, maybe you can call it the Shunammite Psalm. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the, need, lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Yes, to, to follow Jesus will be very, very costly. Standing up and saying something for the sake of the gospel will, will at, at the risk of being mocked and insulted and abandoned, it will cost you something. Being made fun of by your peers, choosing to downsize your lifestyle so that treasures don't hold, a, uh, don't hold your heart and you can spend money elsewhere will cost you. Again, just like the Shunammite woman did. But God doesn't overlook the sacrifice. He looks after those who lose for his sake. Those who have become poor and widowed and orphaned for his sake will be lifted out of the dust and lifted out of the ash heap of this life to be seated with princes in heaven. And more than that, to be seated with our God on the throne. Next to him, of course. <laughs> He sits on the throne, but 
We have an eternal weight of glory waiting for us. For those who have radically decided to follow the Lord and been persecuted and sacrificed earthly things for heavenly ones, everything that you've lost will be returned. There's a jubilee year coming for every Christian who gives everything up for God. But it is a long, long wait until that day. The Christian life is a, a long wait for redemption. Secondly, and this one will go, it's going to be a little more brief because um, we'll get into some, there's some themes here in these verses we'll get to later on in Elisha as well, so it'll be a little repetition. But the Christian life is a very long wait for justice as well. So here's kind of a bizarre story in verses 7 through 15. Elisha goes to the capital city of the foreign nation of Syria. Remember, that's the same nation as uh, that Naaman the leper came from. It's the same nation that sent an army after Elisha, and God sent chariots and horses of fire to save him. The same nation that besieged Samaria and caused a famine. Uh, Ben-Hadad, the king, is sick. He sends Hazael to go ask Elisha if he'll recover. Uh, once you get into verses 10 and 11, there, there's a little bit of tricky um, Hebrew translation going on a little bit. Uh, you, you might have a footnote uh, in verse 10 that actually seems to say the exact opposite of what Elisha says. It all kind of hinges on this Hebrew word lo, L-O, which, which can both mean not and to him. So you can read it as, go say, you shall not recover, or go say to him, you shall recover. Uh, The the ESV, verse 10, has has chosen kind of the more tricky translation to talk about, because why does Elisha go tell him you're going to recover if he's not? Likely what Elisha is getting at here is that Ben-Hadad should recover, He ought to recover. He would recover if it weren't for Hazael. In fact, he will actually die even though he shouldn't. And again, verse 11 is a little tricky too because who's gazing, who's staring, who's embarrassed? It's a little tough to tell. Probably Elisha is fixing his gaze on Hazael as he tells him this very ominous and and cryptic sort of prediction. Um, Hazael seems to be completely oblivious, but Elisha knows that Hazael is about to become king and inflict a brutality upon Israel that they have never seen before. And it makes Elisha weep. Hazael seems a little eager for that to happen, to be honest. Because even when he says in verse 13, who am I but a dog that, that I should do this great thing? He should say awful thing, right? But he says great thing. Um, and then, of course, Hazael goes on to, to make this prediction come true by smothering the current king the next day. Uh, so what? <laughs> what does this have to do with anything in Elisha so far? Well, it all hinges, hinges on answering the question, who is Hazael? Hazael is a name that we have not heard since 1 Kings chapter 19. 
after Elijah had won the war on Mount Carmel and rained fire down from heaven and defeated the 850 prophets of Baal, and then immediately after that, Jezebel puts a bounty on Elijah's head, and he has to run away for his life, and Elijah runs to the mountain, and he has this big, uh, it's essentially sort of a lawsuit that he presents to God to say, Israel's still forsaking your covenant. What's going on? I thought raining fire down from heaven would be enough to send a revival, to bring a revival and make something happen. He's righteously angry that Israel keeps sinning. And God's response is to tell him four things. Number one, I have left 7,000 faithful people in Israel. You're not alone. Number two, you will anoint Elisha as prophet to take your place. Number three, you will anoint Hazael, king over Syria. And number four, you'll anoint Jehu, king over Israel. Of course, Elisha's been anointed and taken his place. Jehu is what's coming next. Here, we have Hazael being anointed king over Syria. And so the upshot here, this very strange encounter, is that God is keeping his promise for Hazael to become king. And for what purpose? It's to judge Israel. Uh, Remember, for Elijah, and for many, many, many years of God's people, It's been just a wonder that somebody like Ahab can sit on the throne and just tear Israel down to nothing. To leave God and worship Baal and just ruin the country. So Ahab did it, and then apparently there's this promise that it's not going to last forever, but then Ahab's son is king and he's wicked, and then his son becomes king and he's wicked. And so what's happening It's not coming yet. Even Elisha seems to be helping that along a little bit because he's dealt with Jehoram a few times, the current king, and and actually helped him in war and helped him stay on the throne. What's going on? Well, Elisha, for a long, long time, up until this point, has mainly had a ministry of grace and restoration and salvation and deliverance and help, but now the scales start to tip in the other direction. And he's going to turn to more of a ministry of judgment. So Hazael, we get told many, many times throughout the rest of 2 Kings, is going to do many, many things to Israel and start to make it crack and start to bring it down. Um, Israel, and in particular Ahab's dynasty, his family dynasty, it's been like this great big reservoir of evil, just filling up and filling up and filling up, and it looks unshakable and unbreakable, and nobody can take it down. But beginning here with Hazael, that that dam starts to leak. So it helps us to see God's justice can very often be delayed, but it is never forgotten. It often looks like he's forgotten justice, but it's only delayed. This is, really, this is a major point in, in Peter and his second uh, letter that he wrote to sort of console the church and to spur it on to holiness, where he says that many will scoff and say, what judgment is coming? I don't see anything. The sun comes up, the sun goes down. I don't, I don't see anything changing in this life. Yeah, right, there's a judgment coming. 
And Peter says, do you remember the days of the flood with Noah in Genesis? That day came in an instant. How many scoffers were there for Noah? How many people mocked and insulted him? But the day comes. It comes suddenly. It comes like a thief in the night. It is very hard to trust God and keep going when evil dictators oppress nations. All the way down to just just being made fun of at your workplace for being a Christian. We take heart because we know that God is just. But at the same time, his, his justice is delayed for a reason. It's because his justice is a, is a sad thing. Right? Do, do you notice how Elisha weeps when he sees what's about to happen? Right? Elisha's not you know, rubbing his hands together and eager and says, all right, here we go. It's finally coming. Been waiting for this day. No, he's not eager to eager to get on with it. He, he weeps at all the tragedy that's about to happen. Again, Ralph Davis, a commentator, says that Israel is, is sinning away their day of grace, and it just breaks Elisha's heart. It breaks God's heart, too. Elisha does what God does. In, in Ezekiel chapter 3, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Luke chapter 19, as, as Jesus is, um, is marching to the cross, He weeps over Jerusalem, and he says, Would that you had known the things that make for peace. And again, to quote 2 Peter chapter 3, God does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Even even the way that we view justice says a lot about our hearts, right? We, We both long for that great day of redemption and restoration when sin will be no more, and yet, like Peter, like Paul, uh, even like Jesus, there, there's this longing for more time. Just, just give me a little more time with them. Give me a little more time to preach the gospel. Give them another chance to hear. Give them another chance so they can be saved. I don't want this, I don't want this horrible justice to be rained down on them. So I think even as we look forward to that last day, it, it sort of changes our perspective. Hopefully it keeps us on mission as Christians. Keeps us on mission to go and make disciples and to send the gospel out. And really what, what this whole situation boils down to, what, 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 again, both of these stories amount to is remembering the end game as Christians. Remembering the end game as the church. So, so as, as time marches on, as life marches on, hardships arise, afflictions hit us, mock, mockers mock and scoffers scoff, questions come up, doubts come up, it looks like God loses, it looks like maybe God has forgotten, it looks like he's gone silent, it looks like maybe God was never there to begin with. When it starts to feel like this life is too much, when it starts to feel like Maybe my life could actually be pretty good without Jesus. You look at the cross. You look at Jesus' death. You look at what he's done and how long that took. You remember that God is not slow to fulfill his promises. God counts time a little differently than us. 
He's not slow to fulfill all of the things that he plans to restore to us. He's not slow. Um, he's not. He's not slow to fulfill his promises. Just as we can keep looking back to Jesus and remember that our sins have been paid, remember that we don't face hell anymore, remember that we look forward to eternal life with God in bliss forever. We can and we must count on the Lord to deliver on all his promises. He remembers his remnants and he remembers his justice. So there's, there's a great consolation there. There's also a great exhortation. Continue to live your life radically for your Savior. Anything you give up for him is not lost forever. You repaid everything. It's, it's easy for us to start off strong and just kind of start to fade as time goes on and things start to hit us. But we're called to persevere. Persevere and endure in that sort of radical obedience and commitment to Christ as his disciples. And, again, it will all be worth it in the end. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, even as uh, Jesus himself prayed in John 17, we do pray that you would sanctify us with your truth. And your word is truth. And even as he prayed of, of his disciples then as well, do not take them out of the world, but deliver them from the evil one. We do pray that you would send us out into the world, deliver us from the trials and the, the attacks and the schemes of the devil. Do pray that you would consecrate us and sanctify us, continue to work on our hearts, knowing your love for us, helping us to love one another, witness to others, showing your glory. Help us to endure and persevere in this life, even as sometimes that, that our emotions and our lives ebb and flow, they go up and down. Help us to stay steady. Help us to look to you for our strength. And help us to endure faithfully to the end. And we ask this.